2: Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. I am your Norwegian host, Samas Vyborg Thu. And tonight, dear listener, we continue our journey into the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance Eastern Europe. We left Erzabed Bathory last week, on New Year's Eve no less, as she was storming out of her local church. Her priest, Minister Istvan Magyari, was shouting after her and her consorts and asking for the bodies of the recently deceased to be dug up and examined. In this episode, which is the third chapter in the tale of the Blood Countess, we will pick up where we left off. We will start to see more clearly the murderous excesses Countess Bathory reveled in, and we will hear the testimony of those who were there all those centuries ago. This episode is, thanks to you, dear listener, 100% sponsored ad-free. It is financed solely by my very loyal patrons, who are helping to produce the show via Patreon. As I have mentioned in the last couple of episodes, the podcast breached the 10 million downloads mark by the 1st of December 2018. If you wish to participate in this show's continued success and development, I have created several tiers for those of you that wish to support the show financially. If you pledge $1, that is still a really big help. But you are, of course, welcome to donate more. And the rewards for doing so gross the larger the donation is. For example, I will read out a public thank you if you donate $15. And if you really want to join the TSK aficionados, donate $50 or more. Go to patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast to learn more. Any donation is greatly appreciated. Also, do not miss out on bonus content, previews, exclusive interactions with me, and more on both my Facebook page at facebook.com slash theskpodcast and my subreddit on reddit.com slash r slash theskpodcast. I really appreciate listener feedback, so please feel free to post reviews, comments or questions there. Imagine if you will, dear listener, as you stand with the good minister Istvan outside his church. Perhaps it's thunder you hear far off, coming in the direction of the palace at Sarvar, where the countess is hurrying off. The countess was furious, for one of the people in her employ, priest nonetheless, to publicly criticize her was outrageous. As soon as she was safely behind her palace's thick stone walls, she started penning a letter to her husband, Count Nadasti. She demanded he return home at once, to punish the insolent priest. Her husband, who probably knew Elizabeth better than anyone, knew that when she was in such a mood, the best thing to do was to obey. He returned home immediately. He sought out both Minister Magyari and Zvorarich to hear what on earth they thought they were doing. To the Count's dismay and embarrassment, they did not relent their suspicions and told him exactly what they had told his wife. Killing troublesome servants was one thing, but killing clergy was quite another. Religion was the backbone of European civilization 400 years ago, and everyone took it deadly serious. Priests wielded enormous power, and common people and nobility alike feared their god to an extreme degree. The notion of hell was very much real, and the count could not punish the priest for doing his job unless he wanted to be excommunicated from the church, or damned forever to suffer in hellfire. So the good minister, although probably very much aware that he was walking a dangerous path, wrote a letter to the Reverend Gregor Fitierus, the pastor at Kereshtur. The pair wrote that they thought they should warn His Majesty Count Ferenc Nadasdi and his wife regarding the atrocities they had committed they also mention a woman named anna darvolia whom they said had assisted ershebet bathory in inhuman atrocities pastor ofitiareus replied immediately as follows my letter is meant to encourage you and also magyare Encourage and exhort him that he not take leave of his intention, but to proceed fearlessly in the name of God. We are, by the grace of God, his faithful engaged in battle, who help each other with prayer and advice. This executioner woman, Anna Darvolya, should, if she goes to communion, be subjected to special examination. This requires the obligation of the faithful pastors and its method, according to the Apostle Paul, regarding such a one who shows no remorse, and therefore should be excluded from the service. Anna Darvoglia is an interesting figure. Originally from Croatia, then a part of the Austria-Hungary Empire, lived in the town of Sarvar. From at least 1601 until 1609, she served the Countess Bathory, and soon after her employ, she took up permanent residence with the Countess. She is described by the locals in the area as a wild beast in female form. Allegedly, she taught Ershebet and her servants elaborate and deadly methods of torture. Hannah's favourite method of torture included beating someone up to five hundred times until death finally occurred. Due to her ruthlessness, she quickly rose in favour with the Countess and served as her personal assistant and adviser. According to contemporary records, she was the one who advised the Countess to prey on, and, here I quote, Peasant girls who had not yet tasted the pleasures of love, i.e. virgins. This fits well with the modus operandi of the blood countess. A few missing peasant girls would not have been a political bother, nor married the attention of civil authorities. By 1601... Rumors regarding Anna's brutality were already circulating. She was said to have designed a designated torture chamber and executioner's butcher's shop within the Sarvar castle grounds. The servants were all in agreement that not only did the Countess approve of this, but she was an active participant in the torture and murders. Count Nadasti was no lamb himself, and he joined his wife in her bloody pleasures. He also had useful experience from the battlefield fighting the Turks. Soon, the Countess was an expert in how to strangle servants and peasant girls in the Turkish style of execution. One method of execution favored by the Turks were execution by hook, sometimes called the gaunch. Hooks were usually placed on higher places, most commonly on wooden structures specially built for this purpose. The hooks on the horizontal pillar resembled the ones used by butchers to hang meat. The victim, who would usually be naked, would be pulled upwards to the top with ropes, and then the executioners on the ground would suddenly let the ropes loose, causing the prisoner to fall on one of the hooks beneath him randomly. If the victim was lucky, he would take a lethal wound and die instantly, but this was a small possibility. Majority of victims would get hanged from their non-lethal parts of their bodies, and had to wait in pain there for many hours, even days. No one would intervene from that moment on, and the victim would be taken out of the hook only when he was definitely dead. A more common practice of execution by the Turks was the use of a garrote. The victim would typically be tied to a pole with the hands fastened behind her back. A spike would protrude from the pole placed just below the skull, pointing at the centre of the victim's neck. A rope or wire would then be looped around the young girl's neck. The countess would then be able to slowly tighten the noose, as you would a tourniquet. The victim would first start to suffocate, as she would arch her neck to avoid the spike. But soon the noose would tighten so much that the spike would start to penetrate our flesh, causing massive pain, but not very much blood loss. When the spike would penetrate the next vertebrae, the girl would convulse and then die. By March of 1602, the good ministers Magyari and Zvorarich were contemplating what to do. By now, they both knew very well what was going on at the castle Sarvar, but they had no legal authority to intervene, only theological authority. They were seriously considering denying Anna Darvolia, the Eucharist, and possibly even excommunicating her. Despite the continuous rumors of torture and murder of young girls, The Countess and Anna regularly attended church services as though nothing were happening. Denouncing Anna was very risky, though, as both ministers were under the protection of Count Nadasdi. Excommunication was also a theological problem between Lutherans and Calvinists at this time. However, upon his return home, The Count Nadasti managed to calm the two ministers. It is tempting to think he did so by threats of gruesome torture and death. But again, we must remember that the way nobility treated clergy was extremely different from how they treated common people. A far more likely solution is that he simply bribed them. He was very wealthy, and records of his massive financial contributions to the Lutheran Church started around this time, and even continued well after his death. Any talk of excommunication, digging up of bodies, or any further public criticism suddenly stopped. Although Count Ferenc was probably furious with his wife, for letting her private fascination for torture and murder become a public matter, he knew not to pursue the matter, since he himself was a willing participant in her excesses. Ferenc was a feared man on the battlefield, and stories of his treatment of captured prisoners are graphic. He is said to have danced with the dead bodies of his enemies, threw severed heads into the air, or played catch-and-kickball with them. His ruthlessness did not only concern his enemies, but his own men as well. A band of mercenaries in his employ had demanded back pay of some sixty thousand ducats, but had been given no such amount. The troops then sent a secret delegate to the Turks, promising to turn the town over to them if they could pay them the sixty thousand. The Turk leader sent ten thousand ducats. The troops took the money, and began plundering the town for the rest. Nadasti rode in to put down the rebellion, and he almost immediately managed to force a surrender. He rounded up his rebel troops, and ordered that they be, and here I quote, hanged with inhuman cruelty, to make an example of them. One particular gift the Count brought back from his campaigns to his wife was a device that resembled a hand of sharp claws that could be fitted over the fingers to cut, slash, and stab a victim. If you have seen the horror movie Nightmare on Elm Street and are familiar with good old Freddy Krueger, you know what sort of device the Countess now was in possession of. Count ferenc did not limit himself to simple beatings in his torture games. He frequently ordered young servant girls to stand naked before him outside in the courtyard. He would then cover her entire body with honey and force her to stand there in the scorching summer sun while swarms of insects attacked her body. When the girl passed out, he taught his wife, Erzebet how to insert pieces of oiled cloth between their toes and then light the fabric on fire. One wonders what provoked the Countess to torture and murder to such a degree. It is possible that her behavior was triggered by her early years of marriage. The Count most probably brutalized her behind closed doors, as this was not only common, but customary at the time. Husbands in this era were freely permitted to torture their wives into submission, to punish any act of disobedience, and to maintain their status as lord and master of the household. As such, Erzhebet's torturing seems to have started out slowly and progressively, first with pinching, biting and kicking. Then she advanced to pricking, or sticking pins and needles into lips and under fingernails. After this, she progressed to inflicting burns on her victims, or cutting them with knives. All acts of meanness and cruelty, but not yet fatal. It appears that when Ersebet acted in concert with others, she found the courage to push the limits further. The profile of Erzhebet's victims was almost always the same. The hundreds of witnesses who testified agreed that men were not targets of the Countess's attacks, and for the most part mature women were not either. The victim was almost always an unmarried adolescent girl. However, Mature women were not completely safe around the blood countess. One example stands out. A married woman had once defied her mistress and refused to follow an order to dress up as a virgin girl to work as a table attendant during a festival. The woman was described as full-figured and matronly and refused to play the part of a child. The countess became enraged at this. In her anger, she went and brought in a small log, commanding her to put it in diapers and carry it with her around the castle, saying, Suckle your child, you whore. Don't let it cry. The countess even woke the woman up in the middle of the night, violently forcing the piece of wood to her breast, as though it were a baby. Later, Erzhebet turned to torturing the woman, whose name was Motley, in a variety of ways, until she finally died.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give Better Help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.help.com/serialkiller. As I mentioned earlier, although the two good pastors felt morally outraged at Countess's behaviour, so did certain local gentlemen. However, none of them had any legal means of pursuing the matter, especially because of the status of the Count Nadasti himself. He had distinguished himself in battle several times and was lending enormous sums of money to the Hungarian crown. At his death, the crown owed him nearly 18,000 gulden, an amount that King Matthias II claimed even he could not afford to repay. So long as Ferenk Nadasdi bankrolled the Hungarian crown and the Habsburg Empire, no one dared touch him or his wife. The common people of the area had little or no way to seek justice or compensation. They could not seek assistance from governmental authorities, and their only recourse was to bring action against their own masters, which rarely, if ever, proved successful, since their masters were thus their own judge and jury. Although the Count Nadasti relished torture and abuse, he did not approve of mass murder, It was very damaging to his reputation, and he forbade his wife to murder any more servants. This command would not last very long. In March of 1601, the Count was struck by an illness that caused severe leg pains, and the condition seemed irreversible. In 1603, he fell gravely ill, and became permanently disabled, and— he started to make preparations for his death. He wrote two letters, one to Ferenc Bathiani. wherein he asked him to protect his wife and children. The other letter he wrote to Georgi Thurso. On the 3rd of January, 1604, the day before his death, Ferenc wrote the following to Thurso. God has visited upon me this disease. And if I am not to survive, I formally entrust my heirs and widow under your generous protection. The day after the letter was sent, Ferenc Nadasti died in his bedroom. It readily appears that the Count's generous contributions to the Church and the ministers under his protection. And removed any moral misgivings that good Pastor Maggiari previously had held. At a funeral service he said the following, and I quote His Grace fought the good fight against Satan, the world, temptations of the flesh, and sin. He carried forth the Word of God with forethought and love. Happily is he now gone to the Lord's table. He did not spend his leisure time in idleness, but was dedicated to the reading of the Bible. He was like a good father to his subjects. He distributed food and clothing to the poor, and supported the young in their studies. He ate and drank sparingly, never overburdened his heart with excess. He ate only once on Saturdays, and on all days before holidays, and then only sparingly. The more recognized and great he became, rising in the eyes of his king and countrymen, the more ever so humbly he conducted himself, because any such pretensions were far removed from his inner character. Quote. Eight months after her husband's death, the lady widow of Nadasti went on a lavish shopping spree she purchased for herself and her personal attendants an exorbitant array of clothing for a lump sum of 2,942 gold and 11 dinar. Both her signature and that of the Viennese merchant, Georg Peck, are present on the sales document. The amount is absolutely enormous. At a time, the annual income of a senior officer of high rank or any doctor with a good reputation was approximately 150 silver. The amount of 2,942 gold and 11 dinar would thus today amount to several million dollars. Like all of her many transactions, the countess always paid early or within the month, and often in cash. She assumed control over all asset management after her husband, and she tended the Nadaz de fortune well. She also made sure to continue her late husband's practice of financially supporting Lutheran efforts and various clergy. Yet, at the same time, the monks who lived across the street from her Viennese manor were so disturbed by the screaming of tortured girls coming from her residence that they hurled their pots at the windows in anguish. The woman, who spent her free time torturing servant girls in private, was a complete paradox in public. After the Count Nadasti's death, Elizabeth no longer had any reason to follow her husband's command regarding murder. We cannot say exactly what triggered the escalation of torture and murder after Ferenc's death in 1604, but by then Elizabeth was certainly used to running the estates on her own. She did, however, rely on certain things for her support, especially her steady stream of income that her husband had provided while alive. The military, as well as the Social protection his high office brought her was also something she relied on. As I mentioned earlier, most of the Nadas de Bathory fortune was tied up in real estate holdings, crops, and livestock. It was thus difficult to have a ready amount of liquid assets, and she had been used to having easy access to this thanks to Ferenc's plundering of Turk treasures. As well as confiscating the occasional offending European nobleman or merchant, these funds were no longer filling the Sarvar coffers, and Ergebet was starting to feel more and more vulnerable to top it off. She was no longer a beautiful young woman by sixteen o four Hergebet was in her mid- forties and aging fast in an era when few people And return to our postmodern 21st century. But fear not, dear listener, next week I will bring to you a fresh new installment in the Blood Countess Saga. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. I have been your host, Thomas Vyborg Thun, and this podcast would not be possible if it had not been for my dear patrons who pledge their hard-earned money every month. There are especially a few of those patrons I would like to thank in person. These patrons are... Sandy Maud Amber Anne Charlotte Christina Claudette Evan Jennifer Joe Lisbeth, Mickey Philip P.J. Sarah and Troy you guys really helped produce this show and you have my deepest gratitude thank you as always I thank you dear listener for listening please feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcast app my facebook page at facebook.com slash the sk podcast or reddit And please, do subscribe to the show if you enjoy it. Thank you, good night, and good luck.